When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott Benjamin. And I'm Ben Bullen. And we've got another vehicle today that is from the Dream Cars at the High Museum. We just can't stop. I know. There's so many of them. And this particular vehicle is the one, and I don't know if you recall this or not, but uh-huh. we talked about this, maybe even on this podcast, that when you arrive on the floor of the museum, when when you, know, you, uh, you pay your money, your admission, mm-hmm. and you get into the elevator and you go up to the second floor where this exhibit is, this is the vehicle that you're greeted with as soon as the elevator door is open and it's breathtaking. Yeah, it's directly opposite of the elevator doors. Ladies and gentlemen, today we're talking about the Norman Tim Special. 1947. Sometimes you'll hear it called the Buick Special, the Norman yeah. Tim's Buick Special. There's a reason for that, and uh, and we'll talk about that. But uh, just a gorgeous, gorgeous car. I mean, it's it's uh, it's sleek. People use uh, uh, sexy when they describe yeah, this car. streamlined. It looks as though... There are. It looks as though it, the entire car is one single piece. Yeah, like a, almost like a um, you know the the uh, the stingrays or the, uh, the the fish design vehicles. You know, like the yeah. smooth, smooth flowing bodies, like a polished river stone. A beautiful. Oh, very good. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful car. So we'll tell you all about this car today. I promise. And there's some real twist to this story because, oh, yeah. as it appears now, I mean, it's a Concours level vehicle. It's beautiful, gorgeous in every way. But it wasn't always that way, and we'll uh, we'll tell you how it uh, uh, kind of uh, reemerged on the on the car scene very recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no kidding. All right, so where do you want to start, Ben? Uh, wh- why don't we start with Norman? Okay, sounds good. So Norman, built by Norman Timms, that's why they call it the Norman Timms Special. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a guy from Van Nuys, California. Yeah, a uh, mechanical engineer, and uh, by the time he begins building. The special, he has already been uh, working on winners of the Indianapolis 500, uh, like the famous Blue Crown specials. Interesting, huh? Actually, a couple of winners. I mean, three winners in a row, 1947, 1948, mm-hmm. and 1949. 
And uh, you, know, you mentioned the Blue Crown uh, spark plug specials, right? Right. These are driven by Bill Holland and Maury Rose. Now, Maury Rose was the driver that was selected to test drive that Firebird 1 test car. Remember they said it, yeah. the, uh, the engineer that was in charge of the program couldn't handle it. Mm-hmm. And they selected Maury Rose because he had Indy 500 experience. This is uh, he, this was a car that kind of ties, I don't know how to say this, Ben. It, it kind of ties these two together, and they're right there on the same floor together at the museum now. Yeah, which is weird because there's some connective tissue there that you might not know about. We're just strolling through the exhibit. But speaking of connective tissue, I can't believe I buried the lead because you know the uh, connection here that I'm probably the most excited about. I think I do. That connection is that, which I totally almost skipped over, was that Norman Timms was not just your ordinary mechanical engineer, your run-of-the-mill automotive engineer. No, sir. Uh, he was working with the famous Preston Tucker on Tucker Automobiles. That's right, the Tucker sedan. He was he was one of the designers. He was right there in-house with Tucker designing the Tucker uh, Torpedo, the, the mm-hmm. Tucker 48. So uh, what a cool history this guy has. I mean, so we're talking like late 40s when this guy is really – uh, making a name for himself, I yeah, guess. Yeah, his glory and days. Exactly right. So it makes sense that he would kind of break out on his own. And in, in 1947, I guess this kind of is right around the same time as when he's working with Tucker. Yeah. Um, because Tucker was 48. He decides that he's going to build his own streamlined custom vehicle. And, uh, man, what a cool project because the streamlining was a huge thing back then. It still mm-hmm. is, you know, it's around. It comes and goes to these days. Yeah, it really does. But, um, you know, it's big at Bonneville. It's big, you know, for mm-hmm. land speed records, mm-hmm. things like that. But streamlining, we talk about aerodynamics, sure, but not streamlining. And streamlining is such a cool art form almost, really. The people yeah. that make streamlined vehicles are, are just uh, unbelievable in what they do. They're, they're remarkable. Can I make a comparison? Yeah, sure. Okay, so let's think of just aerodynamic form and design as the science of of the concept, but uh, streamlining is more the aesthetic or the art. Sure, yeah, it's the two combined, right? Yeah. So you have to know what you're doing ahead of time, and then you have to make it look beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to make it look beautiful, but in this case, he did because he's trying he's trying to build a a road going vehicle. He wants something that is uh, something that he could drive every day, and that's mm-hmm. what he did. Now it took him three years to build the Norman Tim Special, and yep. um, a lot went into this. Now, remember, he had this this uh, this engineering background, so there's a process that he followed for the special, and it started out with some you know some detailed chassis drawings, which uh-huh. makes sense, right? Yeah. Then he moved on to quarter scale clay models, mm-hmm. and uh, I think there were several body styles that he actually worked on for that. Right. Yeah. He had more than one clay model, a uh, couple different variations on the theme of the body, and eventually uh, this. He, he found little pieces of each model that he favored, and he combined all of those principles into a single wooden model. And then, Scott, he made an aluminum body for the car uh, by hand on this model, just forming it around the wood. Yeah, isn't that cool? So he made, you know, kind of a skeleton form that you would be familiar with. You've seen a uh, a wooden buck vehicle, I guess is what yeah, they call it, right? Yeah, And then he started forming... Uh, these alum- aluminum panels all over the the uh, wooden frame, you know, hand forming them, uh, getting them together, and then he had to weld the pieces together, and you know, of course, grind them down, smooth them out, and uh, and form them again because you know I'm sure that that you know in the forming process, the heat or whatever he used to, right. to do so would uh, would warp them a bit. So uh, he was a real craftsman, this guy. And uh, there's there's just there's so much to this vehicle, Ben. I I, th- I think they said that he was inspired 
by, or it was possibly inspired by some of the auto union cars from that era. Like uh-huh. 1937 auto union type C, which was driven by Bernard Rosemeyer. Um, unfortunately, I think that's the car that he died in, you know, making a, uh, a world speed record run on the, uh, on the Autobahn, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, he was inspired, I think, by that design because I've seen a lot of places, a lot of articles that, that point to that vehicle as kind of being the, uh, the genesis for the idea of the, of the Normanton special. And you can see the lines in it. I think you, you really can, can, but it's not the only one. There's also the Mercedes Benz, uh, W25 Avis Grand Prix. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the, you can definitely see, I guess, what today we would call the DNA of of the uh, Type C in the special itself. But let's go into when he actually makes the vehicle, because he goes from this little wooden model, and mm-hmm. I can't call it little, this fourth size model, mm-hmm. to something that's uh, darn near 18 and a half feet long. Uh, 17 and a half. Seven, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. I meant darn near... 18 feet long, 17 and a half feet long. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I just, yeah. the only reason I'm clarifying that is because the proportions of this thing are so important because when you do look at the auto union, auto union type seek vehicle, you're going to see those proportions in the same vehicle because yeah. the driver sits in a really odd position. They sit almost right on top of the front axle. Mm-hmm. And then the way that the, the rest of the chassis is set up is so unusual. The, the engine is directly behind the driver's seat. Yep. And then there's a spare tire behind that. And then there's a good deal of distance to the very back end of the vehicle. It's a long, long tail on this thing. And there's a small front end, and that contains a uh, – well, it's got a hood, but it also contains right. a a, um, a luggage compartment. A yeah. Tr- a trunk, I guess. Yeah, and there is a spare tire. It's just under – it's hidden under that enormous tail. It's way, way at the back of the vehicle. I mean, the fuel tank's back there, the engine's back there, the spare tire's back there, and all this is laying flat, so it gives you an idea – of the distance between the driver and the back end of this vehicle. It's very strange. Yeah, the proportion is, I don't, it's not unique, but it would be unique today. Yeah, I think so. The thing weighs about 2,500 pounds, even though there's a lot of aluminum and, you know, aircraft-type tubing on this thing. Um, but the engine, we need to talk about the engine for just a second. Oh, yeah, that 1948 Buick Straight 8. That's right, and that's where the Buick Special comes in. That's mm-hmm. why they call it sometimes, you'll see it listed as the Buick Special. And apparently that was a crate engine that was ordered from a Los Angeles auto dealer, a Buick dealer at the time. And this actually had a couple of features that came from earlier Buick spins. So um, one thing that it had was uh, dual carbs, mm-hmm. something they called compound carburetors that were offered on Buicks from around 1941. So uh, this is something that's, you know, five or six years old at this point, but yeah. uh, interesting feature that he would, you know, kind of add on, I suppose, uh, to this crate engine. And um, the other thing is that a lot of the other running equipment, you know, the other uh, the other stuff that's that's below the uh, the beautiful body on the sure thing sure is uh, is pure mer- mercury. Uh, so mercury, the brakes, the yeah, steering, yeah. So the, you know the the division of Ford Mercury, which had only been around since about 1938, it was formed by Ethel Ford, mm-hmm. and um, I guess you know it was something that was available. You know, so the uh, yeah you mentioned uh, what the brakes you mm-hmm. mentioned. Um, the steering as well. Yeah, that's right. And what's most unusual maybe about this whole thing is that when you look at it, you know, it's it's an enormous body on this thing. Yeah. It's only two pieces. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. 
It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. It's so weird because, okay, if you look at the photos, you can see the seam, right, Scott? Right there behind the, the driver's seat. Exactly right. It's a hinged seam behind the driver's side. So it's almost like a clamshell rear end that opens up to expose the engine, the, the fuel tank, and the, uh, and the spare tire. Mm-hmm. And it's a massive, massive piece. I mean, it's very, very heavy. And I think that he originally, I think there's a note here somewhere that it was originally hydraulically operated. Mm-hmm. He had a uh, hydraulic pump that was, <laughs> they said it was a little too strong for it. I think somewhere along the way that that went away, but we'll get to that when we get to the uh, uh, the bit about restoration. How about that? Perfect. One note about the body, however, is that uh, it, just to underline how extraordinary this body was, uh, we said it took Tim's about three years to complete this car, mm-hmm. uh, stem to stern, and it cost him around ten thousand dollars. Ah, ten grand. Now, ten grand in. Uh, what year was that? 1947? Yes, sir. All right. I've done the inflation calculator. Oh, if, thank uh, you. Unless you've already got it. Uh, you know, I got to be honest. You're always so consistent with it that I just <laughs> kind of, uh, it's a trust fall. I assume that you will have it. <laughs> and you're right, Ben. I do have it. So um, I did do an inflation calculator calculation uh-huh. on this, uh, you know, for, for current market value, I guess. And $10,000 in 1947 would equal $106,880.27 in 2014. Oh, man. So that is a pile of money for someone to pour into a project, you know, like a garage project, right? Wow. Um, that is so, so much money. That is a lot of money. Now, that, that figure, that $10,000 figure comes from a uh, Mechanics Illustrated article that was written about this vehicle back in 1949. So, uh, you know, that was... From him, he said it's about this much, but you can right. you can say that it was about one hundred and six thousand dollars for this project uh, mm. for him to complete in his garage. But 
even though it is technically a garage project. Oh, oh, before I forget the side note of that $10,000, Scott. Yeah. The majority of the expense was the body. Oh, I would completely understand it's that. Aluminum in the 1940s. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, and it's a difficult, difficult material to work with. So, um, yeah. as far as welding and, and smoothing, I mean, the body guys can tell you all about this. I really can't. Yeah. I've heard that it's a difficult process. And because they're so large, mm-hmm. there was a lot of problem with warping. And if you had any kind of, you introduced any kind of heat to the, the, um, the thing, which I'm sure that they had to, you know, doing some of this welding and some sure, of the, uh, sure. the forming. Um, I think it was a really, uh, really difficult body to put together on this thing. A very, um, uh, I don't know, a grand project to take yeah, on. Yeah, no kidding. And also, uh, let's go ahead and consider this, my friends, uh, you, Scott, and listeners there at Homer in your cars. Uh, maybe that's why Mercury and Buick are all over the interior of the car, because maybe there was so much money on the body Could that, be. that he said, you know, I don't have time to get a uh, no don't get me wrong that buick straight eight is a nice engine yeah but he wasn't going for like the duesenberg chassis exactly yeah i understand exactly. okay so it was uh he was going for availability of parts things like mm-hmm. that maybe uh maybe something that could be consistent uh because i think there was a plan to have a series of vehicles you know that, that yes. was the intent of this it wasn't so much that he wanted to build one car and that was it i think the original idea was i'm going to build more than this but here's the initial one the prototype it just never went beyond that proof of concept. Now, if we go back to where uh, that interview, right, Mechanics Illustrated in yeah. 49, mm-hmm. uh, he he did have a, a good interview there. And here's why I don't think it's fair really for us to just call this a garage project, because Norman Tim's garage project blows up in the same year. It's on the cover of Motor Trend magazine. Oh, and this was a big, big deal, right? I yeah, mean, it's the second issue. Yeah, Motor Trend. I mean, think about this. Now, Motor Trend is a, uh, a staple on the newsstands now, right? I right. mean, it's always there. Yeah. Uh, this was, again, October 1949. This is the second ever issue of Motor Trend. So this is kind of a, a I don't know, it's uh, it's a remarkable time in history, I guess, for this thing to be on the cover. is a big deal. Mm-hmm. So he... Um, it was called the Buick Special, I guess, when it was featured on the cover as well. Yeah. So, and the article title that goes along with it, was was called homemade streamliner and there's a little bit of uh not controversy but you know people kind of uh chuckle when they read this because you know it's not much of an article it's a very short article but right you know when they say homemade streamliner right um yeah. they give this kind of like a false hope that anybody could you know maybe create something like this at their own at their own house right i mean yeah believe in yourself follow your dreams but it is tough well you've seen all those articles you know like uh <laughs> you know build your own hovercraft type right, stuff yeah. and you know make your own uh sailing vessel or whatever you know submarine yeah submarine that was another good one yeah mm-hmm. so you know the idea that you could just somehow throw this together in your garage was kind of absurd, and they were only giving you a little bit of hope that maybe it's possible. I don't think they mentioned in in uh, Motor Trend that it cost him ten grand in 1947. No, that's but, uh, in mechanics. Yeah, but they did call it a little workbench project, which I thought was kind of funny. I mean, that was a quote, a little oh. workbench project. Now that's a uh, maybe the wrong way to describe this, but you're right in saying that you know this thing kind of blew up because in uh, well you mentioned. 1947 is when he finished it. There were a couple of, you know, magazine articles, auto magazine articles right. around 1949. Mm-hmm. Well, by 1950, I don't know if he needed money or what, but he decided that he was he was done with this whole thing. And he advertised it for sale in Road and Track magazine in the February 1950 edition for about $7,500. Now, I didn't do the calculation for that because I just found that information today. Um <laughs> 
but it had a, uh, a claimed top speed of something in excess of 100 miles per hour, and he claimed that there was less than 5,000 miles on the odometer at that point. So that's 1950. Um, and then we'll kind of step through the 1950s here with some more history. Ah, yes. Okay, so this is where uh, someone else enters the story, the new owner of the Tim Special, and that would be an Air Force officer named Jim Davis. Now, Jim lived in Manhattan Beach, California, and there's a little bit of misinformation that comes into play because the car surfaces again in um, – in the magazines of record, it surfaces in the mid fifties, about 1954 in an issue of motor life. Mm-hmm, that's right. And, uh, he's painted the car white and he says that someone else made it. Yeah. He calls, <laughs> he says the, uh, the, uh, the guy now, this just could be, you know, misunderstanding. It sure. could be a misprint, whatever, it probably but, is just, but they consistently in this article call call Norman Tim's. They call him Larry Tim. Mm-hmm. Or wait, no, t- yeah, Larry Tim. Yeah, right. T-I-M-M. T-I-M-M. So they call him Larry Tim. So that's a little bit of misinformation there. But again, this is years on past, you know, when whenever the ownership transferred. And I don't know if there's anybody in between uh, this Captain Jim Davis and mm-hmm. or the officer Jim Davis and, uh, you know, um, Norman Tim's himself. I, I, You know what? I don't know if there was, but we do know that when Davis bought the car, it was in 1952 and... Again, according to this Motor Life article, uh, Davis was the first person to register the car. Yeah, for road use, right? You're right, yeah. Okay, so, all right, yeah, so there's some interesting twists and turns going on in the story. You know, after this uh, this Motor Life magazine article in 1954, you know, uh, of course, um, Air Force officer Jim Davis had owned it for about two years at this point. He lives in Manhattan Beach, California, by the way, or uh. li- lived, I should say, in Manhattan Beach. And... Um, there's kind of an unusual twist to this whole thing. Now, right around the same time, the car was featured in an episode of Buck Rogers, which is right. really cool. How neat yeah. is that? I mean, interesting uh, interesting bit of television history, I guess. But you'll also find that now there are a few subsequent owners that own this thing, and it went through some really dark days, I guess, if you want to say that that way. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was displayed for many years outside of a place called the Halfway House Restaurant in Saugus, California, and they say that children would run and play on this thing, on the body of this thing. Now, remember, it's aluminum. Right. So kids running all over it, you can imagine that it just mangled the body, smashed it down pretty flat. Uh-huh. Um, it was used kind of like a uh, a bit of playground equipment. Yeah, or would, a lawn sculpture even. Yeah, that's a better way to say it, maybe. Um, and the kids would just kind of play on this and have a good time, you know, before or they're waiting for a table or whatever for the restaurant. Um, and I guess it was even like there was even a, a indented area where they would run up the very long back end of this car, right, that and, tail, and hop into the driver's seat. And they said there's like a clear indentation where the kids would run up the back tail of this thing. Plus the uh, the paint coating is gone. This mm-hmm. is almost just bare gunmetal gray. Yeah. Uh, the, they've cut holes. Okay, this is what gets me. Oh. They cut holes in the rear of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Remember uh, to expose the engine and the rear wheels. This thing looks like garbage, ladies and gentlemen. It really does. And it continues to look like garbage until uh, what? Two thousand? Two thousand two? Yeah. Now here's here's the other part of this yeah. is that you know after it goes through all this, I don't know if it goes through even any more owners or what, but it somehow ends up in the high desert of California 
in right. Ant- Antelope Valley, California, mm-hmm. and it shows up in a in the background, I guess. Of, of oh yeah, a few scenes, or maybe a scene. I'm not sure how much really. I didn't look into this, but yeah. and Gone in sixty seconds, starring Nicolas Cage. Yeah, the uh, the later version of Gone in sixty right. seconds. It shows up for just they said a few frames, I guess. So it's out there in the desert somewhere. Um, somebody there on the set of that um, of that production buys the car because it says it went to a Hollywood Studios prop guy, you know, who bought it. So, yeah. you know, I'd, I'd like to buy this, uh, the streamliner body. He decides then that he's going to take it to uh, L.A. and he's going to mm. sell it at the Peterson Museum automotive auction. Right. The, the, yeah. year, the yearly auction that they have or the uh, I don't know if they do it anymore or not, but they had an auction at the Peterson Museum. Specifically for classic cars. Exactly right. So he bought this thing and he brings it there and, uh, you know, he's thinking like, I'm going to make a fortune on this thing. And I think that <laughs> the, uh, I think that the, uh, the auction was run by Barrett Jackson. Yes. Um, so the, uh, the one guy kind of gets, gets a hint that this thing is going to happen. Uh, the guy's name is Gary Cervani. Mm-hmm. And he won the auction and this is in what, 2002, Ben? Yeah, it was in 2002 we won the auction for $17,600. $17,600. Now, I did another calculation, Ben. Oh, okay. Not that's really necessary, but I figured, you know, there's been about 12 years that's passed. So in 2002, $17,600 was just that. But now in 2014, it'd be about $23,317. So it's gone up, but not significantly. Runaway inflation, Scott. Still a deal. Still a deal, right? I guess, yeah. Uh, so you're right. No, you're right. I'm just being cheap. And it's bought with, it's bought by this guy, this Gary guy who is uh-huh. from Malibu, California. Um, mm-hmm. he has a wife. Her name is, uh, Diane Cervani. And uh, again, both from Malibu and they've decided that they're going to restore this thing. Now I think, uh, Gary has some interest in this or has some, uh, some background in this because he had restored a belly tank racer, you know, for the mm-hmm. Bonneville salt flats. Yeah. And had done so successfully. You know, it was an easy project for him. Not easy, but he had completed the project, bought this thinking he could do the same thing. And he really kind of on the way realized I can't really do anything with his body because it's aluminum and it's very frail and right. it's very difficult to work with. But he did continue to do, um, you know, like the, uh, he did the engine. Yeah. He did, he did the, the drivetrain too. Yeah. He did the drivetrain. He did, the, I think the suspension, you know, the chassis mm-hmm. work on himself, but then he did have to farm out the, uh, the body work. Yeah, to uh, Custom Auto in Loveland, Colorado. Uh, they had some advantages, though, because when he got the car, it was about 90% original, mm-hmm. so there had already been some work done. Very fortunate. Uh, right. Custom Auto was there to tackle some of, as you as you said, Scott, the really tough body work. So those halves of the body that we had mentioned earlier, they had been bolted together, I imagine, so that the kids couldn't open it. Yeah, and you mentioned the holes already, right? So right. Somebody, somebody had decided that, um, well, okay, you know, I remember earlier I mentioned the hydraulic lift for that uh, for that tail section, yeah. the clamshell thing. Yeah. I guess that back end, even though it's aluminum, is very, very heavy because mm-hmm. there's a framework underneath it as well. So you go to lift that and it's it, it'll wear you out. Well, the the mechanical part of that had broken down. You know, the hydraulic lift. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet, and also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously, it's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. 
Papertarians know that it's the smart choice too, because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource, and paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune into what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And so you would have to manually lift that up. And the one of the owners along the way decided, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to cut an access hole in the body or the engine. And I'm going to yeah. cut an access hole in the body to get to those back wheels because they're completely covered. If you look at the um, if you look at the the current state of the vehicle, right. you'll see that they're totally covered with one piece. Um, you know, and you would have to lift the back end to be able to access those. And that matches the original pictures from the 50s articles. Yeah, yeah. And you know, while we're talking about that, this is an interesting point I think to bring up about the paint. Now, all those photos in those magazines that we see, it's kind of a dark-colored vehicle, right? Yeah, and they're all black and white photos. That's the problem. They're all black and white, and no one really knows what the color of that thing was, right? So we know that when Jim Davis – is that the name? Jim Davis? Yeah. The, uh, the Air Force officer? Mm-hmm. He, he painted the vehicle white, so that was easy enough, right? We understand that. But what color was it prior to that? No uh, one really knew. Yeah. Well, it turns out there was a um, – uh, I guess he had a, a kid. Uh, um, Norman Timms had a, had a son. And I guess his name was Norman Jr. And they found Norman Jr. And Norman Jr. said, well, my dad also built me a go-kart oh, in the day. Oh, okay. And he painted the go-kart the same color as he painted that old special car that he used to work on, I remember. So they took a paint chip from the go-kart that Norman Jr. had because they were able to track that down somehow. Wow. They found a small paint chip from that. Yeah. And then they custom mixed um, the exact color of the original Norman Tim special. So they were able to do that from just that one little chip. Now this body shop in uh, in Loveland, Colorado, I mean they do this kind of thing. So they go to these levels for restoration, you know, they they do this regularly. This is like a concourse level restoration. I guess it's a uh, described as a like a red maroon finish with a gold metal flake and they finally mm-hmm. decided on the exact shade, the exact bit of metal, you know, amount of metal flake to put in this thing. 
to make it exactly like the original. Right. And when you see the vehicle, it is a striking deep red. Uh, but again, to be fair, it may be d- difficult to differentiate between the body and the color because uh, with a car like that, almost, I'm not going to say every, almost any color would look really, really good on it. I think so. I think you're right. Now, I mean, the, the color really does play into this thing. I mean, it, sure. it's, it's gorgeous, the color that they've, that they've chosen. But that was, you know, Norman's decision back in 1947 to paint it that color, and that's what they stuck with. And again, you know, this uh, this uh, customs auto place in, uh, in in Colorado, this is the the pains that they go to. The guy's name is David, I think it's Kraus, uh-huh. uh, who owns this place, and uh, he does this type of restoration work, you know, for uh, concourse type vehicles. And that's where they decide that this thing is going to make its first appearance. Now. If you ah. go back and look at any of these photos of this car when it was in the desert in 2002, I mean, as recent as 2002, right. you would never, ever guess that by 2010, that's when they decided to reveal this thing, 2010, this was going to be a show winner at Amelia Island in the concourse event. Yes, sir. Uh, it won the RM Auctions Trophy for the best open car. So... From the junkyard to the Jubilee, really, this is amazing that it it became probably the most improved. If there was an MVP uh, award or most improved award for classic cars, it would have won this year. Yeah, but you see, here's the thing. You know, this concourse, if you go to a concourse event, I've, I've been to several of these. Right. There are so many stories similar to this. You know, like uh, this car was at the bottom of Lake Erie for three years before <laughs> I found it. Now, and now look at it. It's a show winner. You know, it's a it's $17 million for this thing. Yeah. Um, you know, that type of thing happens. I mean, that's a dramatic example. But what I'm saying is when you look at the photos of this thing in the desert back in, you know, 2002, you'll never, ever guess that it's the same body even because it was so, you know, kind of squished down, I guess. Right. It's it was there. deformed. It's sitting there without wheels. Yeah. Uh, no bumpers. I mean, you know, when they went to great, great lengths to restore this thing, finding the original uh, hubcaps, things mm-hmm. like that, and they they would wait years for parts to become available and uh, and put, you know, a lot of time and effort into the restoration, you know, the, the correct restoration of those parts when they did find them. So uh, it's an amazing, amazing process. And now... You know, this car, what it does is it, I mean, it travels all over the, you know, the U.S. at least, if not the right. world, I'm not sure. But it it uh, participates in these, I guess you call them prestigious shows. Right, yeah. The Customs Then and Now exhibit, the Grand National Roadster Show, and so on. And, it, and of course, it's invited to the Concours events. Right. It does very well there. It's, it's always highly awarded whenever it goes anywhere. Not just Amelia Island, you guys. Pebble Beach as well. Yeah, so it, <laughs> uh, it travels and uh, it does very, very well. And, um, you know, it's just a lot of people say when they see this car, even, you know, on a field of, of other multi-million dollar vehicles, this is the one that makes them stop dead in their tracks and, you know, inhale a breath, you know, because it's just it's so striking when you see it in person. It really is a mm-hmm. beautiful, beautiful design. I'm glad I'm glad we were able to see it in person, stand next to it, walk around it a bit, because that, <laughs> you know, again, this this uh, high museum of art exhibit, this dream cars thing. Right. Is just it's it's incredible. It's a beautiful, beautiful exhibit. And uh, the, the nice thing about it is it's not just one weekend. It's hanging around to like the middle of September. Mm-hmm. And they've extended the show. And I know that shows like this happen, you know, at other museums around the country. I've been looking up some of the uh, some of the the stuff that we could maybe get to in a car, you know, like on right. a, a short day trip or something. 
And uh, there's there's little pockets of this here and there, but I feel fortunate to be able to have seen this one in person. We still have to get down to that drag racing museum. Definitely. The uh, Don Garlitz Museum. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so one thing that we do need to point out is that you guys have heard us say a couple of times uh, that it originally, the Tim special originally had a hydraulic lift. Uh, the car itself has not been completely, it's not 100% the uh way it was originally right yeah that's right there's a few changes here and there mm-hmm. uh one of those changes i believe is the hydraulic lift right like yeah. that's no longer on there yeah that's right now there's an electric motor screw jack is what they call it so it's uh it's an electric device that uh that lifts up that that great big body piece in the back um let's see what else is oh there was other something else about the uh the frame i think originally this is so strange he had pressurized the framework. You know, he had he had sealed it all off and pressurized it. And I want to, I kind of want to say it was with nitrogen, but I just can't remember what he pressurized it mm-hmm. with. So it was supposed to strengthen the design. Now, someone who looked at it recently, you know, someone who I think the uh, the guys that restored it said, you know, this is a great idea. It's very advanced, you know, to think this way, especially back in 1947. Sure. But they said that it would take something like a thousand psi in order to really feel any difference in a pressurized tube frame versus, you know, just leaving it empty. Oh, to make the difference they wanted to make. To make it stiffer, yeah, because yeah. Uh, that's what he's attempting to do is make it a stiffer framework by pressurizing it. Yeah. And great idea, but it would require so much pressure, uh, pressure that he probably didn't have in 1947, you know, be able to put a 1,000 PSI in that thing to make it feel any different. Yeah. So good idea, but uh, maybe not the best execution. And plus, let me let me just be the Murphy's law advocate here to point out what would happen if God forbid that 1000 PSI seal was broken. Mm, mm. Maybe, maybe. Mm. I mean, what do you think? A pinhole leak, maybe something like that? A uh, pinhole. I don't, I don't know. What would it do? I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that would cause any kind of uh, damage or not. If it just leak out and you'd never know it was missing. Hmm. I don't know. You'd probably hear it. Oh man, that would be maddening. Seventeen and a half feet of tubing, you know that uh, I can't you know, deal with lots the of idea of that. Trying oh. to find that, and the other thing is that uh, they converted it from six volts to a twelve volt system. Uh, a lot of vehicles back then were six volt systems, so that it mm. makes perfect sense. They would up to a twelve volt system now. I still now I think we're reaching the end of the show here, Scott. But mm-hmm. I, I just have to say for the record. I am still startled this thing can hit 120 miles an hour. That's pretty amazing. I mean, that's how, the stat we hear the most. How cool would that be to be in this thing cruising at that speed? That would be, it <laughs> feels so cool. It's such a long, low vehicle. I mean, yeah. you mentioned 17 and a half feet. I think, uh, something about I read where the body itself is only like 39 inches tall. Right. So without the windshield, with the windshield, it's 47 inches or okay, something. Okay. So it's still extremely, it's very low, extremely low, yeah. wide, long. It's a, it's a great looking car. You're just sliding down the road. Uh, definitely. And, uh, I would, I would love to see more of this vehicle in action, but this car in particular made me realize even more the importance of keeping your eye out for every hunk of metal that you see. Because, again, we cannot emphasize this enough, guys. 2002, I guess, to 2010, so eight years. Eight years it took to restore this thing, more than worth it. And the next next piece of steel rusting in a field that you pass – could very well be something like this. You know, I don't know how many times we're going to read stories like this in the, in the near future. I mean, because it's happened. 
that you know that there's somebody in a, a news helicopter or something and catches yeah. a glimpse of a vehicle in a junkyard somewhere or out in a field somewhere. You know, something like that happens. Right. Or a private pilot catches, you know, catches, you know, something catches their attention. Mm-hmm. And they, they say, that's an unusual shape. I'm going to go check it out when I get down the ground. And they go do, and it's like, a, you know, a Motorama car or something. And it's worth right. half a million bucks the way it is. Restore it, it's worth four million or five million or whatever. That happens occasionally. It doesn't happen often, but it does happen. And this is another case where it was just a, a diamond in the rough that somebody saw, you know, on, on a movie set and said, wait a minute, this, mm-hmm. this, this is way out of place. There's some, there's got to be a story behind this. Yeah. So keep your eyes open, ladies and gentlemen, because who knows what that next little glint off in the forest might be. I mean, this is just something that had just disappeared for, you know, decades and it just came back and now it's making the, uh, making the circuit, you know, uh-huh. so it's on the circuit of uh, these prestigious, um, exhibits and, and tours and everything. Sure. Um, I don't know. It's just remarkable how something like that happens. It just goes away and then comes back and it comes back in a big way. It was, it was reborn almost, yeah. uh, Actually, kind of literally reborn. Uh, Scott, speaking of saving cars, before we call it a day on this episode of Car Stuff, I've got a special piece of listener mail for us. You want to hear it? I'd like to hear it. Okay, great, because uh, honestly, man, I, I don't know what I would have done if you had said, nah. <laughs> Close it out right now. Close it out. We're out of here. Okay, uh, Scott, Caleb S. writes to us, and Caleb says, uh, Hey, Scott and Ben, I'm a new listener, but really enjoy your podcast. Binge listen to many episodes over the summer. I'm very interested in cars, more specifically how they work, not really how cool they look. I'm a younger listener, 15, and I do not have too much experience tinkering with cars. I've played around with small engines from lawnmowers and the like, but never been able to really mess with a car engine, just changing the oil and rotating tires, etc. To gain more experience with cars, I've been looking into purchasing a salvage car, not in terrible condition like flood or fire damage, but something that just needs some good tinkering and parts replacements to fix it up. I was wondering if you guys have any ideas on how much it would cost to fix up a salvage car. I would just want to purchase a low-end salvage car like a Honda Civic or another common car so the parts are easy to find. Thanks for the great podcast, Caleb. Oh, boy, Caleb. Oh, Caleb. Caleb, here's my advice. Uh, Please do not buy a salvage vehicle. I mean, I just think that uh, you'd be better off if you just bought a a cheaper kind of uh, a POS car that uh, you you could find in your local classified somewhere. I would say stay away from a salvage vehicle because you're going to have trouble getting rid of it on the other end. That's right. one thing. The other thing is that there's always so many hit. I mean, there's a reason that it's total. Mm-hmm. There's a reason that the insurance company said, we're not going to pay to fix this because it's not worth it. I know you're saying you just want to tinker with something. I get that. Right. But the things that could be, the, the things that could be broken about it may interfere with even your ability to tinker and experiment. And so it is a little better. It's a better idea to get a used POS. And of course, on car stuff, when we say POS, we mean pretty old stuff. Of course. Yeah. Uh, family to, show. Family show to get to get one of those uh, cars because the the first things that I want to say, uh, Caleb, you are making some really smart decisions already. The idea to get a Honda Civic or another common car so that you can have the parts readily available—that is very smart. Also, um, the idea that uh, Caleb is so much more responsible than I was when I was 15 because you've gone through the the small engines, right? And you're building up toward the actual, toward the automobile engine. Um, A used one, a used car that still runs or even a car that has some problems, 
would would be great, and I think it would be worth your time to because just like Scott's saying, and I'm agreeing with you here, Scott. The problem with a salvage car is that not only do you have no idea what could be going on with it, but it it, it really could it really could be so bad that you are not able to tinker with it. Yeah, that's right. And when you do do what repairs that you you think are necessary, there may be something deeper. And it could be a safety issue. I mean, there's a there, again, there's a reason that the insurance companies have, have totaled that vehicle. So, you know, Ben's right. Just pick up the uh, you know, local classifieds, or you know, search the local classifieds, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, and find something that's just a couple hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. You know, those are out there. Oh yeah. Especially the ones that you know are having mechanical problems, and that's what you're looking for. Right. Just look for a car with a clean title that has mechanical problems that you can then tackle in your garage because you're not even driving yet. You've got a chance to uh, to work on this stuff. You know, there's no pressure. No time pressure. You know, I think Caleb might not be even looking for a car to drive, just something to tinker with. Exactly right. And you still don't want to have a salvage vehicle parked on your property and have to deal with any kind of, uh, you know, the, the extra paperwork and hassle that a salvage vehicle comes with. You don't want to, you just don't want to have to deal with this. Yeah. Or can you, can you imagine working on something just to, a lot of times if people are tinkering with an engine, then the the whole end goal is, can I get this puppy running again? Yeah, exactly. And imagine finding something where the damage is so extensive that halfway through you realize the only way to get this running again is to buy a new engine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something like that that's major, major, major work that uh, you really can't do in your own garage. The, uh, the other thing is that... Um, you know, I mean, I, I mentioned this already, I think, but you know, just a couple hundred bucks, you can find vehicles relatively cheap. I mean, mm-hmm. rel- I say relatively because you know, you're not buying new and but, common vehicles too. Again, common vehicles, but you know, look in the four hundred dollar range or something like that. Right. You know, keep it, keep it low, and uh, and I think it's a smart decision. And if it's got a lot of miles on it, that's okay too, because then you'll be able to, you'll be able to have uh, some really great. Uh, tinkering with uh, new parts and old parts and see the wear on them. Uh, read the spark plugs and stuff, which is still a really cool thing. Uh, Caleb, thank you so much for writing this email to us. And listeners, uh, we hope that you'll weigh in with some advice for Caleb as well. And uh, let's make a deal here. If you do decide to pick up, uh, if you do decide to pick up a used car, uh, send us some pictures. We'd love to keep track of this and see what you find. Oh, definitely. Like the condition it's in now and the condition that it's in uh, when, when you're done with it. You know, yeah. When you're ready to drive. So Absolutely. It'll uh, be interesting to see the progression. Yeah, you can't beat it before and after, right? Uh, so we're going to go ahead and head out for today. We hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed pulling a, a fanboy about the uh, Tim's special. Uh, so write to us. Let us know what you think. You can find us at Car Stuff HSW on both Facebook and Twitter. We have our very own website where you can find all of our podcasts, uh, carstuffshow.com and you can take a page from Caleb's book and send us an email directly. We are carstuff at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. 
As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fairs. Discover more at Viking.com. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.